Coming up on the way in with Walrus. I believe this technology is transformational in the West still. I mean, I think it drives tremendous more efficiency, you know, more trust by trusting less people. I think it's revolutionary outside of the, you know, dollar, euro, pound, yen environments. Our view is the institutional money is going to come have real business reasons to be on a chain and need to use the chain for its business reasons. And oh yeah, that means it needs liquidity in the core coin that uses the chain. On top of that technology, what we're doing is fundamentally cementing that technology into the core of how the world economy works. But keeping all of the capabilities it has to be secure, synonymous, later anonymous, you know, these are important core infrastructures. A lot of what we're talking about, you know, is again kind of almost as old as humankind. I mean, you know, speed is now new. I mean, you know, you did not in the past have the ability for a fractional bank to be able to be attacked this quickly. And there's no way out of it. Um, you know, the, the issue is already, as we see, is people are going to have to compete with Bitcoin as a payment method. And so the Treasury is finally, after 20 years, probably too late, making it so you can do nights and weekends payments. Vitalik is right about one thing, and that is the blockchain is a trilemma. You can have high TPS, security, or decentralization choose to. And now, on the way in with Walrus, Mr. Gene Hoffman. Mr. Hoffman. Gene, how you doing, sir? I'm very well, man. Thanks for having me on. Man, it's a, it's an absolute pleasure. I've, uh, like I said, I, I got semi-introduced to you from uh, Orca or Cookies or, again, whatever, whatever y'all's community would call that crazy guy. So uh, it's been a bit of a tangent since then. The Chia Degens. <laughs> the Chia Degens. That is a, in a world and in an industry of crazy people, those guys stand out. The great thing about them is they're crazy like foxes, though. It's not the degeneracy oh, yeah. you see other places. It's people actually, you know, embracing the why. My, uh, yeah, I have a few friends who say the same exact expression, smart like a fox. Yep. They're, uh, they're savvy guys. Man, so one of the first just kind of tangents I really want to jump on, I actually use this example all the time. So when you were, when you were running eMusic, almost right in the middle of your tenor is right when LimeWire and Kaza and some of these other download uh, platforms came out. I was just kind of curious if you could kind of run us through if you see any parallels between that type of a, a technology disruptor and something that was, you know, stagnant for a length of time. Yeah, there's a lot of parallels. And in fact, there's a lot of parallels that are really applicable to what Bram and I are trying to do here at Chia. You know, Bram, of course, the inventor of BitTorrent ends up being the person who, you know, took the money out of, in some ways, the scams of piracy. You know, you had a lot of venture capital going into LimeWire and others, Napster, et cetera, that was trying to fundamentally, you know, capitalize on theft. And what BitTorrent said was, look, you can't stop this stuff, but you also can't make money on it. And on the other side was what we were doing eMusic, going to the record labels and others and going, look, but the thing is, if you make this easy to use for people, then people will use it and they'll pay you for convenience. And, you know, understandably, I think the record labels thought we were not being straight up with them, but, you know, many of us were. Um, I ended up being a record executive for a little while after Universal Music bought eMusic. And I had a funny moment where they were like, some question they would always ask me at a Jupiter conference or whatever. And they were like, well, you know, what do you think? And I'm sitting there at a private meeting with them. Like, I told you the same thing the entire time. This is what you're going to have to do to get internet users to pay you guys money for music. They will. But you've got to make it friendly, easy to use. You know, this was the iPod era, right? And it was all those pieces, you know. And, and then the, the carry forward parallel is, you know, I sit talking to banks, right? And there are a lot of people who are like, oh, my gosh, you know, cryptocurrencies well designed or destroy banks. It's like, no, not at all. 
that change a lot of things about how banks operate. But just the same way that really the record labels didn't get removed. And in many ways, like the movie studios were smarter and watched what happened to the record labels and went, let's not make all of those mistakes. Let's try to make this stuff easier to use. You know, it's not perfect. And, you know, there's Bitcoin in the background making it so that you can't really extract too much money from the average consumer because sooner or later it's like, well, I can't find it on Netflix and I can't find it on Disney Plus. I guess I'm going to bit torn it. Right. And, you know, here it's really having that same conversation going, look, in the music business, there were clear losers. Um, Tower Records wasn't going to make it, right? right? And there are some clear losers in the financial infrastructure. You know, this, the international wires desk at Citibank isn't going to make it. But Citibank is going to make it. You know, whatever you like, think about fractional reserve banking, and right now that's a pretty hot topic, it still is more efficient than 100% backed. Now, should it be 50% backed? Should it be, you know, where we are at like 7% backed? I don't know. I think it's an answer for a future question. But blockchains especially aren't good at that. You know, and let's really look directly. Like, you know, if you look at Terra Luna, Terra Luna is an unbacked currency. And, you know, anybody who knows things about unbacked currencies, well, we watch what happens here when it's well backed by the infinite money printer at the treasury and it's still a problem, right? right? You know, George Soros out there broke the pound when the British said they'd stand behind it. I mean, these are not easy things to do. And so from that perspective, I don't see banks really losing a position. I see them become more efficient. I see them using the tools. And, you know, and we saw this again, as I said, back in the music business, things like Harry Fox went from being this kind of proto-regulator to ultimately being a statistics firm that collects all the data for Spotify and Google and helps like flow the royalties back to artists and songwriters. So, you know, I expect a lot of that's going to happen. You know, things like DTC, which is the way that uh, U.S. equities trade, I expect we'll have to adopt blockchain technology to get faster for settlement. And it'll still be DTC, but it won't look much like DTC looked, you know, five years ago. Yeah, there, there's a really big parallel. And I use that same one. So you, when you brought it up that they were like, hey, people will come pay for this. You just have to make it as good. And the way I've always brought that up is we, in my opinion, I think we actually overvalued that those things were free. They were just better. It's just a better inter interface, better interaction, better product overall. And if, and if you just zoom out a little bit, like you said, they, they didn't actually disrupt, destroy an industry. They freemium onboarded to this new, this new model. And I, I think that's kind of what you're tying at, that we'll see the same thing with a lot of these financial players. Yeah, it, it's hard now looking back. But at the time, most people over like 25 in 1998 thought CDs were good enough. And thought, in fact, that like digital music was a bad idea. And, you know, they were kind of extrapolating from their 56K modem. And it actually was a problem raising money in e-music. And one of the stories I tell a lot is I had to come up with a way to kind of explain to people that this was busted. And so I'd start my meetings with, so who here has a CD changer in your car? And of course, you know, you can imagine what the average investor is. All of them put their hand up. I'm going, okay, when was the last time you changed the CDs and the CD changer in your car? And, you know, everybody like pushed back from the table and go, when I bought it three years ago. And it's like, what if you had all of the music of your CD collection in the CD changer of your car? And then I'd show them what would become the iPod. Uh, and it changed the conversation. And so, you know, I think your point there was that if you're a college kid, Winamp and Napster was a killer application because it was easy. You could travel with it. You could use it in any way you wanted to. It wasn't really about free. Free helped. But ultimately, you know, ended up teaching an entire world like I'm paying my Spotify tax. I bet you are too. Right. I think I think that free made it where the the barrier was really, really low. So it allowed fast adoption. But that wasn't why people were there. That's right. It was much better. It was a much better experience. Right. Like, you know, not having to think about what music to take on a trip is, you know, undervalued as a savings of time and thought. 
right now, you know, there's no reason to not bring every piece of music you care about. And, and like, we're, we're not that edge case where it's like, oh, did I remember to download it? Because this flight might not have good connectivity. I mean, that's where we're at. Right? Oh, absolutely. Which is, which is a huge difference. The, and I'm curious if you see that there, there will be some inflection points. Of, there's, there's a lot of these technologies that I think are converging to kind of solve some of the same problems. And I think one of the things that we're seeing in crypto is that that same parallel uh, where we're not getting we, we have these different barriers that we're trying to move now. But we're also looking for this point of of kind of inflection of where it's actually better. And that's something I don't think that we've really hit in a lot of these things. Like we, so, so we I think, are solving a set of problems, but we're not we're not better. I, so I think the first time we're starting to see that is NFTs. Um, I think it's one of those things where the NFTs and the art market and the what I call lower middle class art market for the first time kind of have a venue and an explanation for why people might care about digital permanence, right? I mean, this is kind of the response to music in a sense is really saying, yeah, we all know everybody can right click save. That's not the point. The point is to be able to say, hey, you have a collectible item that is unique in a digital context. And the reason I see it as such an interesting precursor is it comes with self-custody. I mean, people for the right reasons want to self-custody their NFTs. And that is the entire spirit of what the goal behind, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto's dream really is. It is, you know, you have complete and total control of your assets. You know, I, I joked over the weekend that, you know, while uh, all the banks falter, blockchain, Bitcoin and Chia, you know, relentlessly make blocks of which you can get access to immediately. So I think there's gonna be more things like that because ultimately you want what blockchains are delivering to be better than web two, not equivalent to web two. Right. Um, I do think that part of the thing that's gonna be a little bit different is I think blockchains are gonna be a bit more foundational. And what I mean by that is, is there may be many applications you interact with that you don't really know that final settlement's actually occurring on the blockchain and the data is being validated by the blockchain. Um, you know, one of those early examples for Chia is that I expect a lot of the front end, the carbon markets to like look like a Bloomberg terminal. But what happens is that when you buy and retire carbon, it's actually going out you know, on your behalf and retiring it on chain and, you know, updating the web interface, right? So, you know, it's those kinds of things that I think we're going to see. But I think fundamentally, giving everybody access to a global set of markets in most everything directly is going to be so much more powerful than, you know, your current kind of mediated access. You know, your access is either what your brokerage firm or what your bank will kind of let you see. And that's not necessarily how it's going to work moving forward. And I think we can see that in like the adoption of like peer-to-peer -peer transactions, Sub-Saharan Africa, El Salvador. There's not that same level of competition for front-end user experience. They don't have that. They don't have that established infrastructure in a multitude of ways. You know, whether it's web architecture or even just places for basic remittance. You know, there, there's such a there's so much friction applied in all those areas where where what we're comparing them to in the West is a much, much higher threshold. Yeah, I believe this technology is transformational in the West still. I mean, I think it drives tremendous more efficiency, you know, more trust by trusting less people. I think it's revolutionary outside of the, you know, dollar, euro, pound, yen environments. Um, I, I like to say it's, the, you know, exporting the last mile of the rule of law. It's like you can't get the whole contract, but you absolutely can make it so that once you're transacting, what you expect to have happen is what happens. And it's not some like third party jumping in and bribing an official, you know, all those things kind of fall away when you actually get down to the nitty gritty of, you know, I sent it to you. This is the only other person who can make an escrow decision and it's we three and that's it. That's not been a thing, you know, outside of the West, a strong thing. No. And I think we're even losing some of that personal sovereignty message. And I think that there's a lot of culture aspect, like you brought up NFTs being stronger on that side. I 
I think that's because there's more of a draw toward the intimacy with the technology. Whereas if you look at any of the, I guess you'd say Bitcoiners for lack of a better term, sort of the, that the finance bro session that's come in, it's, it's a financial tool like anything else. They don't have the same level of like romanticism that I think some of us do with the tech. Well, I think also, you know, investors have made this mistake of thinking that these things are all an asset class and it's really a set of rivalrous technologies. I mean, the, the value of a blockchain at the end of the day is demand for access to its blocks. That is actually the kind of fundamental value of cryptocurrency. And, you know, Bitcoin has some demand. Ethereum oddly has more demand, right? And, and that's actually the thing upon which you kind of judge because the beauty of a Nakamoto consensus is that by budgeting the security budget in the revenues of the blockchain itself, you build a natural incentive for the users of the blockchain to both desire access to that space because the security is there and to pay for it. And so, you know, if you get that flywheel right, you need more than just digital gold. You need to be doing payments. You need to do ordinals. You need to be filling those blocks and having people really demand and then naturally moving people to do uh, price discrimination. I mean, price discrimination is one of those terms everybody hates, but it turns out it's like kind of half the reason the entire economy works. Because ultimately, you know, you're not going to buy coffee with a layer one blockchain transaction, even though you can do that today. You're going to buy it on a layer two that gets its inherited security from that security budget down below. But, you know, your layer two does an hourly checkpoint of $50 million worth of coffee. You know, that you'll pay 10 bucks for. And so, you know, I think you can't, you know, you can't just be a store of value. You can't just be a payment network. You have to be able to be both. And when you do that, you enable more than payments. And I think that was something you were starting to get at. Um, one of my theses is like the internet revolutionized most but it missed two things. It had no native financial infrastructure. And so we bolted on credit cards, which is a horrible mistake. And there's no trust in the information. You know, the, when the internet was adopted, security and cryptography were just getting started seriously. And, you know, authenticity wasn't something you're really worried about. I, I would argue that right now, authenticity of data is an extreme worry. And blockchains ultimately give you those two tools that the internet hasn't had in a way that can be truly decentralized and actually build trust. There's a lot there. So I want to go back to that first point. So the talking about the inherent value coming from the space on, I think that's actually kind of like very counter to what we're seeing with Bitcoin. And I think they're about to be rechallenged. So one of my favorite points in all of blockchain history is basically that six months leading up to the Bitcoin, Bitcoin cash split, because mm -hmm. there was such a like viral visceral reaction and people taking both camps and going over those design compromises. And I think that with ordinals, snore signatures, taproot, partially signed transactions, they're about to go through the, a whole nother dispute about what we want there. And I'm just kind of curious how, not necessarily how you square, but how do you think that camp squares it where there's so many people pushing back against more demand for the space, which you think would add value to the Bitcoin network. But I think that there's there's a pushback from a lot of players in that in that ecosystem. So Bitcoin has in some ways become a religion that's anti-intellectual. Yep. And the issue is, is that anybody technically sophisticated who understands how Bitcoin works generally isn't in the religion with a few specific examples that are not. I think that's true almost in almost everywhere. Yeah. And that's a problem because, you know, when you talk to, you know, folks like Alalu or Matt or, you know, Jeremy Rubin, everybody knows that, you know, even Peter Todd is like, look, we're going to fork in ongoing emissions if people don't fill blocks. Like, it's really that simple. And he's right. So if you believe in and want to defend your 21 million coin number, you better be out there figuring out how to get more ordinals and blocks as fast as you can. 
the the issue is is when the bitcoin cash big block argument came around the people making that argument were too simplistic about what the trade-offs were um vitalik is right about one thing and that is the blockchain is a trilemma you can have high tps security or decentralization choose to you know bram and i totally chose decentralization and security still have about a 40 tps blockchain but that's only because like engineering's better 10 years later after bitcoin right not because there's some you know, huge step function different. Um, we also did one other thing, which was we spread our blocks tighter in time. So in, in other words, you know, you still have about the same block space, but every minute or so you get a block. Long story for, we did get more blocks and we're seeing that with with, with Taproot and Tapscript and, and, and Ordinals. And if anything, we want to see more fill those blocks. Now, I'd argue we'd like to see more financial transactions also fill those blocks. I think you won't want it just to be art only. <laughs> But I think art and title are real things. And I think there's real value to those ideas. Uh, anything that drives up demand for Bitcoin block space tends to drive up the fiat value of Bitcoin. And I think anybody who misses that, you know, just does not understand how the technology actually works. There, I think that's another place that we that we struggle. And I've seen this in my, my own knowledge as I, as I go and investigate new protocols, new ways of thinking. It, there's just these, these thresholds in crypto where, you know, you look at a symmetrical Uniswap pool formulas this long. Great. What? Great. This point slope. I did this in junior high. When you go look at a curve, you know, multi-asset pool and you're like, okay, hang on, I'm done. I'm over it. Yeah, totally. And we, and we hit these points where it just gets so complicated one threshold below wherever our understanding is. And I think that that's actually one of the areas where this, this ordinals discussion might be, what would you say? I guess almost price negative in some ways, because I think so many of the Bitcoiners are one band, one sound. It does one thing. We're happy. Don't touch it. Leave my numbers alone. And as you said, that simplicity and that religious like zealotry about it has given them a pretty interesting front where I think other people know corners can get on board. OK, it does one thing. It's gold. It doesn't really move that much. It doesn't change. And there's there's an ease of expression in there. So there's some I think some onboarding advantages there that we either need to improve how we're onboarding people without that level of sophistication, which it sounds like is the direction you're going or there there is some level of uh, weaning off of like traditional entities and vocabulary well there's also something else hiding here that i'd like to call out and that is there's been a whole bunch of narrative violence trying to ignore the shortcomings so you know the the you, you say you're digital gold because you aren't getting transaction volumes and you can see that and therefore you can't defend that it's a you know a unit of account and a payment rail right um and you know look it used to be that ethereum was going to get adoption by banks and governments i was told that where's my ethereum banks and government adoptions yeah so you know, Bram and I looked at all this and said, look, there are real uses here. There are real early users of these. I mean, banks and governments do actually need blockchains. There are certain things they can't really do without them. And so we set out to go build something that did everything that a good blockchain as we know it can do. And in fact, I think we have one of the best NFT, NFT standards in the industry. You know, it is absolutely an excellent payment rail. We see it getting used to do all sorts of crazy stuff already, including raising money for things, but we're gonna make it so you can raise money legally for things on chain. Like imagine that idea. And we've got wow. banks and governments actually in production on the Chia blockchain, solving real world problems. So, you know, a lot of the narratives that we've been talking about have been, I think, coming from weakness instead of strength. You know, the strength is to talk about, look, this is going to change the efficiency of, you know, Western markets and have a radical positive impact on non-Western markets. That's actually what's going to happen. And finally, I think we have a tech stack and a kind of go-to-market strategy that lets you talk about all of those stories. You know, it's not just banks and governments. It's not just an NFT market. It's the ability to actually start thinking about trading equities and debt and, you know, 
liberating all these opaque markets that are stuck behind like Bloomberg text chat. You know, these markets should be things everybody can see and be tested to make sure you're credited for it, but that's trivial. And then once you do that, you automatically interact with it. This, especially with what we're seeing going on currently in Western markets, all this, again, bank issues. And again, we could we could probably pick one thread and talk about those things for hours by itself. I think I think there's two things in, in your guys' accomplishments for what you guys have done as far as partnering with multiple entities, IFC, all these things. And I, I want, want you to expand on that. The there, I think there's two actual victories there. One is that bringing on those large players, state-level actors. The other is that you're bringing them onto what your space is. And I think that when we look at where this is almost, again, one of those narratives where I think that we're just trying to feel good and give ourselves a narrative and a, a storyline to feel comforting in, in, the, in the facts. When, oh, when institutional money comes in, right, and then fill in the blanks after that. When you look at what those players are doing, they're not coming to pump other people's backs. Like there's there's Quorum, CBDC, some variation of these centralized permission versions, the Enbridge out of Hong Kong. The players that are coming in, those guys aren't late to parties. Like they throw the party. Like they're not going to come in and just buy up whatever you guys are doing. So to see to see so many of the, those players coming in, if they're willing to, they come in on their own terms. Whereas you guys are adopting them on your terms to some degree. Walk us through. I think there's a lot of power there that gets misunderstood and not given enough credit for how bringing people on the way we always thought they would, rather than the way they've been coming into space separately. So I think you're hitting on a meme that's accurate, that people are like, the institutional money is going to come and buy my bags. You know, our view is the institutional money is going to come, have real business reasons to be on a chain and need to use the chain for its business reasons. And oh yeah, that means it needs liquidity in the core coin that uses the chain. That's a different statement. It is about expanding the revenue of these entities or significantly decreasing their costs. And when you start doing that, you now have an ongoing fundamental flow of value back to that chain. When you know a major municipal bond issuer decides they should do all their muni bonds on chain, you know, you're gonna see people coming in, they might buy stables, they may buy natives to buy that muni bond. All of a sudden, that much more liquidity flows across the blockchain. It's an important deal, and it's the way that people get the real value from that, right? There's um there was an interesting article I read the other day talking about the French Revolution and kind of the two views. And, you know, one view was, you know, burn it all down, totally revolutionize everything, go and get all of it killed. And the other view was, hey, look, you know, in the United States, we did this revolution. We didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We narrowed the baby down and we made the baby work for us. And by the way, this has been a fight that we cypherpunks have been having internally for 25 plus years. Um, there's actually an interaction between Adam Back and I in 1997 on the cypherpunks list having exactly this argument. And, right. you know, the, the Bitcoin religious view is we must keep it pure. It should never be used as a tool by governments and industries. You know, they'll co-opt it and destroy it. And my view is, is as long as we keep the technology to our principles, and give people the tools to do whatever the heck they want to do on top of that technology, what we're doing is fundamentally cementing that technology into the core of how the world economy works. But keeping all of the capabilities it has to be secure, synonymous, later anonymous, you know, these are important core infrastructures. And when you have banks and governments and later mom and pop, considering this to be something that they use on a day-to-day -day basis, it doesn't go away. It becomes the you know, predominant way we transact. One of the most impactful things I've heard said in some time, speaking of the Bitcoin Lightning Network in El Salvador, a friend of mine who lives there not that far away from Bitcoin Beach 
was telling me that he has people that do not have running water or electricity in their homes charge their cell phone somewhere public and then are still using lightning network to sell coconut water like yeah, to sell absolutely. Right. Like that is. And, and we're so early on this. I mean, you know, lightning is the right general direction. Bitcoin itself has some challenges to make lightning work. I mean, lightning needs a few more things, but that anti-intellectualism of the Bitcoin religion is making it so like I saw Alalu get called out on Twitter for advocating for any advancement in the Bitcoin infrastructure. Like Alalu is one of the smartest human beings I know. <laughs> and, you know, if you think if you think as a guy who like I bought some Bitcoin, number one up and therefore I'm a genius, you don't know smart people. <laughs> <laughs> I actually tell that story specifically so that I think sometimes when people are trying to come in the space, they see they see sophisticated players and assume that they were always that person as they came in the space. And just on that note, I remember some of the first times I bought Bitcoin was from a very immature, rebellious nature. I was like, man, you can buy guns and drugs with this stuff. And the Internet can't control. Right. What's wrong with this? I'm in, man. I'm not saying I want a rocket launcher, but if I want one, I want to get it, right? You know, it was just the most juvenile as, reason. As, as Americans, we like options. Exactly. And <laughs> and then again, if if people saw me now, they like, you know, they just hear a general level of sophistication, been in the space, done some of these things. I'll never forget the first time I looked at it and was part of the bull run and didn't even know what a bull run was specifically at the time, wasn't paying attention, didn't have any of that investor mind state, understanding the tech. And it went up. And I just remember saying in my head, Oh, I've got more Bitcoin. And I closed the phone and went on doing what I was doing. And none, none of the significance about the fact that it, it had doubled in value, that there was more like just none of the understandings that we would expect now. And I, I think that's important for people to understand is that you don't they don't have to be you to come into the space and start using the tech and onboard people or use it for commerce. That's right. I mean, you know, and look, one of the things I say is, you know, because I have to talk to a lot of normal people who don't know anything about blockchains, you know, welcome to Capitol Hill, for example. And one of my first things I say is like, look, the problem with this space is you're at the absolute bleeding edge of computer science. And in a one sentence, you get from there to the 1933 and 1934 Securities Acts. And you kind of need to know all of that. So there are no dumb questions. Now, sure. the problem we have in the space is there's a lot of motivated reasoning out there. You know, people want you to think proof of stake is secure. <laughs> you know, pe people want you to think that Bitcoin is eating the entire world's power, not just probably too much and should do better. You know, sure. these are important things to kind of keep in mind as you look around because, you know, Ethereans want you to buy more Ether because they think it's perfect because they own it, not because they necessarily think it's working really well. That again, like some of those d discussions there, I think are because, as you said, you, you have to have such a, you know, again, if we're trying to speak about any, any of these events that happened recently, like, I mean, you have to have an extreme understanding of the regulation just to be able to read through filings. Uh, we talk about the vocabulary difference, stable yeah. coin, issuer, broker, proof of stake, any of these terms. When we what we say colloquially in the space is not what the filings say. And because of those that disparity and even vocabulary, you can't even read the brief. The brief will not tell you what's actually in the filing. Um, yep. We I actually think between me, you, uh, Orkin, we've actually had some of those engagements on Twitter where we're like, hey, if you actually read what they said. It's really not that unreasonable. Like it's not staking as a service if the service performed isn't staking. Um, and so I seeing that overlap again between you have to understand the economics to some degree, the computer science, and then what what problem it actually is that we're implementing both those things to solve. And that's why I I find there's certain people that I really resonate when they speak. And I like to hear more of their take because you're on the far edge of extreme when it comes to cyberpunk decentralization, that there's a, a, you know, kind of a truth to power being spoken, but also the one who's talking about carbon markets and trying to adopt big entities. And I think that that 
having that understanding on both sides is really important for the space right now. One, because there's a lot of crossroads being approached, but because we're, we're, we're bumping into legacy more than we ever have. And I think we're starting to show our immaturity as a space. Yeah. Look, you know, our blog posts are jokingly called cypherpunks and sport coats. And that's kind of the reason, right? Um, one of the things that I think is at least a guiding light in this space is beware of the man behind the curtain. And so the issue here is, you know, when some of us talk about decentralization means you need less regulation, we're talking about real decentralization. And when I mean real decentralization, decentralization that Bram and I can't step in front of, even on the Chia blockchain. The issue you get into when you start looking at these other things that are somewhere between a blockchain and a mock chain is it turns out that somebody does have control over your funds. So, you know, a lot of people think Polygon's great. They're like, yay, low fees, low security. Yay. You know, it scales really easy, low security. Turns out Polygon plus one of four other people can rug in the entire Polygon chain at any time, whenever they feel like it. That isn't what we're trying to do with blockchains and decentralization. You now have moved from trusting Silicon Valley Bank to trusting Polygon, the company. And, you know, sometimes when you hear these regulators railing, these are the types of examples they're actually railing about. You know, uh, Terra Luna. Look, Terra Luna works so great because Jump pushed the number up, not because the actual tech worked. Right. You know, these are the problems. And look, you know, humans have been doing this to each other for a millennia. And this is the reason we have things like securities laws is to make it so that you can't go out and claim my tech works, but instead you're just manipulating the market. So that is the, the, the cardinal issue to be looking out for when you're talking about, OK, what is, you know, technology that can bring these decentralized capabilities of true trust where there isn't trust in the third party at all? or it's so limited that it's very easy to understand it versus these things that look like blockchains, but are very far from it. We, we've seen that. And so I like to bring up a little time. I'm a, I like the sports betting analogies when we look at these things, because there's so much design compromises. So people thought they were trusting circle and didn't realize the levels of parlay that went into that bet. None of those guys had ever even heard of Silicon Valley bank and didn't right. realize their bet on USDC was a parlay that Silicon Valley was still going to participate. Well, well, and, and that, you know, uh, the treasury would come and bail it out. I mean, you know. Yep. Yeah. Did, did anyone know who Gregory Becker was, the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank before two weeks ago in the space? No. Uh, and and that is when I say that, that that's that's not that's not me, um, you know, speaking out of hubris saying like, oh, I knew this was going to happen. It's that unknown is is known that we do know that there's these uh, multiple levels of extraction and, and essentially these parlays and players that can break something not knowing them is a risk factor and a part of the risk profile that we, that we have not built in. And it's the same with things like chain links, multi-sig with polygon. And especially if you're stacking these layers where you're trusting the polygon network, the bridge between and chain link, like you start to add that you don't have a point of failure. You have multiple single points of failure and we're, and we're almost saying, well, if you ignore that, then it's great. Right. Well, and this is also, you know, the dominant environment being the account model and solidity and the EVM, you know, Everybody talks about peer-to-peer. -peer. What they don't know they're saying is peer-to-smart contract to peer because these are centralized monolithic smart contracts. And so every time you think you're doing a peer-to-peer -peer transaction across Ethereum, you have to hope for two things. First, you have to hope that the developers themselves did not leave themselves a backdoor. And you have to hope that North Korea hasn't found the backdoor that they didn't think was there very recently. You know, and we see this all the time, be it a flash loan or a reentrancy bug. I think it was a Euler lost a couple hundred million dollars yesterday. You know, it, 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 
Solidity was designed to be viral in its adoption. It was not designed from first principles to be secure. And so, yeah, it's much easier to develop than any of these other, you know, programming language like Bitcoin script or Chia Lisp. But, you know, the uh, security track records to date and in the future are going to be very glaringly different. You know, when you do DV, bleh, pardon me, when you do DeFi and Chia, you're actually only interacting with your counterparty. And the only person who can do anything with you is that counterparty. And they can only take your offer or not take your offer, maybe counter offer point being no third party, no escrow needed. You're not, you know, you're, you're relying that our implementation of a well-known signature standard is right. That by the way, we have audited and we have people who are eyes on, but you know, we can't stop you from doing a transaction. Circle can freeze your USDC whenever it feels like it. Correct. The, and I, well, there's a few places where we're seeing some of that. And I think it's interesting that we're also seeing it in the market in other places. There's a, a sports betting site that, again, I, I haven't used it and have no real interest, but I like where the model's going. And rather than having a centralized player essentially having a book to bet, you go on there and place, hey, I'm going to take XYZ team plus four points, and here, here's my max, and people can come in and take the other side. Right. And it allows, essentially, it's peer-to-peer. -peer. You set your line, other person can decide to take it. And so when you, I think when we see that independent media, like we're, we're starting to see some of these things already segre segregate themselves in more standard markets. And I think that that's going to show the advantages of what we're doing because that will start to slide more and more to where you see, okay, if we're, if we're already interacting peer to peer, why not base in, and we're willing to take the the cons of that. Why would we not, why would we not move to the blockchain? Well, and you know, the cons right now are that, that self-custody is too hard. Um, there's no good reason that self-custody has to be too hard. It is, however, that it's like much easier to build custody tools in the coin or UTXO model, Bitcoin and Chia, than it is in the account model. And so when you start going forward, you get to a world where like two hardware devices in an institution can be the way that you secure your funds. And so, you know, one's hot and does what it needs. The backup's also capable, but like if the backup key was stolen and used, it can't do anything without 24 hours notice during which your first key can cancel everything. And if the institution goes rogue, you might have 30 days to cancel the institution's attempt to spend your stuff. So, you know, making those kinds of tools available we think is going to change how people look at this. I mean, at the end of the day, digital assets should be easier to use and harder to steal than physical cash. One, one because again, you've worked with a lot of a lot of more international players. So I, I want to hear the parallels there as well. How much of that do you think it's actually too hard versus the culture just doesn't value it enough? I think we built a set of custody tools for developers. I don't think we've built a set of custody tools for like the controller of ESG at Exxon, right? Um, you know, we're not saying this is going to be super, super easy, but neither is logging into your email if you've got real threats against your email, but it should be at the same level. You know, there should be passwordless. The backup should be hardware, you know, a third party that you can go use legal process to get in, right? Those are the ways that these things should work. And to date, the toolkit hasn't been, from a developer's perspective, easy to go implement those. You know, that was one of the things that Bram and I early on focused on was making sure that we started to talk about how to use these advanced custody tools to do things like rate limit, to, you know, to have delays on certain high-risk transactions that can be clawed back by other people you trust, right? You know, if you can't keep a hold of your NFTs and you're an NFT creator, you know, this is a scary place. And again, I think it's a state of the technology. I think it's not a fundamental question. I think the actual technology will allow us to build custody regimes that are much cooler than what you can do in the physical world today. That's curious. I would love to hear you expand it. Two things I've been championing and I've even kind of put out when I spoke to people, hey, I don't really know what this thing is, but I know that both these things seem to be very valuable. One, it's ways to delay or sort of modify how people experience finality of a transaction. 
yep. and forms of hybrid custody. I think that those are two of the best things we have going for us and the worst things that we've actually developed. And just as a side note, the Bitcoin religion thinks that en enhancing storing your money is somehow not a money use case. Like that one just, oh my gosh. So this is vaults and introspection is what this all is. It's the technological term. The idea is like, so the Chia Prefarm is in a vault on, on chain. You can think of a vault as actually being an NFT because that's kind of where it comes from. But the thing is the vault has all the rules to store, manage, and transact the coins in it. And then five people inside Chia have a public-private key that can come together as a quorum and do certain things. It can spend, but when it spends, it has a 90-day time lock. And anytime during that time lock, any one key can go out and go, no, no, bring that back. Um, it can also do things like rekey on chain. So somebody leaves and we hire somebody new, we can grab the other three and we'll send a rekey request that will change the key that is part of the five right there on chain. And if we get attacked, so somebody grabs a couple copies of our keys, well, we can up the number of minimum keys. And we can up the number of total keys by rekeying more keys in. And so we can get it to a place where you have to have like five of seven and they only have two. You know, it, it's those sorts of tools where using both delays, clawbacks, and, you know, various Turing complete programming capabilities, you get into very sophisticated ways that you have to both copy our private keys and deny them to us too. Because that's the other thing, right? It's not just, uh, you know, you have a copy of my key and therefore you can spend it. It's like, no, because I can claw it back. I can thwart that anytime you try it. But if you can do that and keep me from having my key, I might not be able to get ahead of you. But it basically boils down to as long as we have access to one private key of the five that we have, we will never be stolen from. Might take a little while. You know, there'll be additional stack delays when you make these changes. You can do things like, hey, there's not a normal number of keys. So we're doing a rekey with only two keys. Well, that's going to take an extra two weeks and that could be canceled, right? Um, it's really up to your imagination about how sophisticated you can get it. And a lot of people worry about this. And it's like, hold on, the way this works, and like, imagine you have an NFT and coin wallet. And what you do is you say in your NFT and coin wallet, look, I can spend coins however I want. You know, it's a hot wallet, I got some money in it. But if I ever spend my NFTs, I want it to have a one hour clawback period during which either of these two keys can claw it back. And one would be your hot wallet, and one would be your backup wallet. Okay. As a buyer, you know, you'd come to a deal using, say, an offer file in Chia, and you go, great, I'm going to pay you 10 Chia for that awesome Chia friend. And you'll know when you're making the offer that that has those restrictions on it. You can see it. You can see it's going to take an hour for your ultimate transaction to clear. But when you start that trade, that hour starts ticking. And during that hour, two and only two things can happen. Either the time lock expires, and now the person who buys it has complete control. Or one of those keys shows up and yanks it back. And your money comes atomically back to you. You don't lose money in that transaction. And that's the important thing to understand. It's like you see that's happening. And especially for a high value item, you know, when you're done with that hour, it's instantly settled. I mean, there's no building, you know, more blocks on top. It's got another hour worth of blocks on it. You're fine. So from that perspective, it's actually, you know, very simple. And you know who you're trusting or not trusting and when to not trust them. You know, your wallet's going to show you, you know, yours in 49 minutes. 48 minutes <laughs> right so i've i've thought about ways of doing this similar with like a non uh, eoa type like smart contract that's basically operating within the signatures on like a multi-sig um what about some of the the re-keying kind of 
uh, more sophisticated ways you guys are looking at? Is that stuff that you guys can only do on Chia or is that still like some stuff that could be done with like EVM, multi-six solidity type code? So, you know, the, the recent uh, account abstraction stuff that they just shipped uh, last week at ETH Denver, it gets closer. Pardon? The, yeah, the 4337? Yeah, I think it's 4337, yeah. Um, it's closer. But the thing is, is the coin model is just a lot more straightforward when you're trying to do this stuff. Because basically, you know, with the coin model, there is no central smart contract. And so each of these rules is in the coin. And so as a buyer, you inspect the coin and, you know, you make sure that you understand what's in the coin and then you decide what you're going to do to make that other side of the transaction. So, you know, you have a lot more flexibility. You don't have to kind of bake this all in. You have to bake it in with some standards for, you know, just ease of you know, transaction. But the standards are more like this is what a clawback looks like. Now I know that. OK, I can see as a wallet. Yeah, OK, I got a clawback. What are the rules of the clawback? Oh, these two keys can. OK, I understand now. Here, let me show the user, you know, what can happen. And are you okay with this? And I, I think that that's, this is an underappreciated area as well because finality is one of the calling cards for those digital gold, those like early large transactions, want to be able to move a million dollars, have it locked up. So finality has a lot of the, the core ethos, but it also is something that is miserably difficult for general commerce and a huge, you know, what I say, a substantial minority, the types of transactions we want to perform. We actually don't want that same level of finality or we want it manipulatable to make sure that this that the goal here is actually being, you know, the the ideas of having self-custody and moving these things around is actually viable and not not that we're actually trying to overcome the tech to perform a transaction. Right. And you have the this is something I think is a way we could really move forward on some of these some of these this some of the areas that we're just missing people is through. That uh, that manipulation of finality, and then also subscription services, which I know you've done outside of, of crypto. Yep. That's something I think that we're missing a ton in crypto. Is we we made everything has to be clicked, like everything has to be clicked. Multiple things you have to go through separate interfaces, like or everything where we do where we're interacting with multiple pieces or trying to make something simple. Like there's nothing that simple to do for a user. Whereas if you could look at a wallet have two or three bills come out of it monthly. Like there's a level of adoption there where people might use it rather than, Hey, I have to come handle this thing every single time I want it to move. There's a, there's to, to your first part of what you were saying, people don't think about how they do this in the real world. Like if you sell a used car to a third party, you want cash or a cashier's check from a bank. You want final money because you don't want to go put that final money in your bank account after having given somebody else your car and have it not be final. But you know, you're buying a $5.99 thing from a weird seller on Amazon. You don't really want that transaction final. You want it to show up, find out whether it's real or not. If it's real, great, the transaction goes through. If not, you're calling Amazon. If Amazon doesn't love you, you're calling your credit or debit card company. And what we're talking about doing is bringing those capabilities directly to a wallet, but not the wallet the way we've thought about it to date. Imagine if really your wallet lives on chain instead. So, the wallet that you think of today, that software wallet, is just really the keys to a wallet on chain. And once your wallet's on chain in a vault, now all of a sudden setting up things like subscription services starts to get completely reasonable. You can have it set. The vault says, hey, if this key comes around and asks for up to this much money during this period of time, the answer is yes. If not, no. And I can cancel that at any time I feel like it. So, you know, you can build some of these, you know, pull style payment methods, but it's totally opt-in. It is limited in the sense that, you know, once the vault's empty of whatever you asset you're saying is, you know, able of being grabbed, well, you can't grab it anymore. But there's no reason that the bot 
that these music service can't see, hey, you know, there were no funds left, canceling your subscription. Right. And we, like a debit card is a multi-sig. I approve it on one end, bank approves it on the other end, then it receives to another. So like, again, as you say, we, this, again, that other reason why I really enjoy speaking with people who've been like very successful in a lot of these legacy industries is sometimes many people who came to crypto came because they just didn't like the way legacy felt and smelled early on. They were smitten with some particular action and they, they just know they don't like it. But if you don't have some level of literacy and sophistication, then you don't really see where we can improve. So if you don't, you know, we don't look through and realize that, hey, a debit card transaction is a multi-sig. Like your standard checking account is already a multi-sig account, essentially. Yes. And, and in fact, you know, one of the things you're saying there, you know, to date when people have gotten debit cards tied to crypto, they've been tied to centralized exchanges. We're thinking about a world where once you add lightning on top of Chia, your vault is a bankless checking account where you can easily open a channel with a debit card provider, set your rules. And now when you walk in to buy groceries, you swept down a Visa or MasterCard debit card, that you know, gateway provider probably charges you a small piece, but ultimately deducts from your vault what you asked for on the card and the transaction is real time. And now all of a sudden you are keeping full self-custody of your coins. You're, at, you're making available limited access to third parties that you have pre-approved under certain conditions. And now all of a sudden you've got bankless debit access to the global payment checkout. And we, we miss it, this, this component peer-to-peer. -peer. I mean, Cash App, Zelle, all these things like peer-to-peer -peer transactions have gotten more popular on their own, like that level of connection. And, and I think if we don't, again, really reflect on some of the places these other industries move, so much of crypto, in my opinion, is a solution in, in search of a problem rather than just saying, hey, look how much friction there is in almost all these all these transactions, all the ways we interact with the world already. And like, let's go solve some of these things. Well, and look, the funniest thing is like, so, you know, Zelle, I mean, Zelle's a little better in that it's actually directly sort of from the banks. But to do a Zelle transaction, you are trusting the Zelle, trusting the bank that you're using, the bank that your buyer is using, and your buyer. <laughs> It's worse in the debit and credit card example because now you've right. got the merchant's bank and Visa and MasterCard in that as well. So there's like eight or nine counterparties to do a simple purchase of a cup of coffee, the debit card. Going to a world where you're down to like one or two counterparties to all transactions is a really different world that has a lot less trust in it, a lot less opportunity for fraud. You know, one of the reasons we pay what we pay for debit and credit cards is there's a some amount of fraud that they can't get out of the system and we're paying for it. Well, what if we could lower that? We're not going to get it to zero, but we can make it a lot smaller. So it's those kinds of things where, you know, it gets back to what I was saying, where I think a lot of things may be in crypto that people don't know are in crypto because ultimately they get to be in front of or behind the, you know, user interface you were used to. But you don't know that now, you know, when a bank run happens, it doesn't matter because your funds are actually in your virtual checking account. And, and there's a moving goalpost on some of those risks, things that we probably would have thought were viable for, you know attack surface and models not that long ago makes sense i think we've just seen if you we say bank run and that's like a term that we feel comfortable with and i always like to challenge people's vocabulary we add all these connotations to words and then we feel comfortable just like one how many of us that say bank run really have you know a good understanding of what, what we're all saying the other is that wasn't a bank run that was the bank run that was you the bank run. of value that moved from that thing what was yeah. it was what was it averaging three or four billion an hour for like a 10 yeah, hour 42 billion in a day the, the other is we get desensitized by because we hear trillion more often, we hear billion more often, we hear million more often, not just in general conversation, but especially in crypto. It's look at this market cap. We've gotten so comfortable with that term that we forget what 40 
billion dollars moving in a day actually means. And even even the scale at which, hey, bank runs could have always happened, but they can never have happened like this. Like, I mean, we're this is what, maybe 10 years if this was even like theoretically possible to have a run of that size in that time. Yep. Well, and also it's about to get worse. So correctly, banks are trying to catch up with the 24-7 real-time nature of payments on Bitcoin and Ethereum and Gia. So imagine if that bank run had the banks open 24-7, 365 last weekend. You know, it would not just been a bank run. It would have basically been a bank run all the way up to what are called the uh, Basel Three banks. So, you know, think City, Bank of America, and Chase. So, you know, it really probably would have destroyed every single regional bank, like all of them. And it's because, you know, everything's friction-free. You know, it used to be you at least had to stand in line to run your bank. Not now. Not now. And especially after we get payments faster from Treasury, like you're going to be able to do it at midnight Eastern. And I, what, what, what gets me on some of this too is with one area that I think crypto actually is, I think on average more used to is under kind of understanding like incentive models. Like we're used to saying like, Hey, you break something. If it does this, Hey, if the tokenomics is shifted this way, it breaks this. And we, so I, we have a lot of these small, these small ecosystems where we see ABA comparisons that once, once they're extrapolated to the size of like the U S economy are much, much more, more difficult. So I think when we see, when we, when we hear these things like the bailouts and how FDIC is going to protect like certain amounts of, you know, over what the original limit was. I don't think most traditional people who just see these things in traditional markets understand how much, how much that moves, how much you're actually like distorting reality when you break incentive muscle models and pricing models. Um, I'm just, I'm just curious how you kind of see and how if you've thought through some of seeing how I, I don't think because they're trying to evolve the term and not say bailout. I don't think people understand that again, when you, when you, give them that amount of liquidity, either up front through federal home loans and the repo and reverse repo, you, you already changed. And that, you know, that's what causes this initial like stretching out of assets and wanting to go longer and more aggressive on their bond portfolios. But whenever we add these regulations, like we, we do kind of distort what makes sense economically. And I, I don't think there's enough just, Hey, like we're, we're playing with some fundamental blocks when we do these things. I'm of two minds about what happened in the last weekend. And I think, you know, I tend to head toward the the infinite money printer go burr problem is really what incentivized all of this. Right. You know, zero rates were always a kind of weird concept. I mean, I understand having low rates, right? But, you know, it was very clear pretty quickly that once it, the pandemic wasn't going to set off the global bank run, that in fact, we probably should have gone back toward a little bit tighter. But I'm talking about like 0.5%, not saying, you know, anything else. And that would have not incented all of the regional banks to go so super long to try to get anything. You know, it, it was basically kind of like the, the the treasury was paying the banks to not create value. It was a very weird scenario. And and a lot of what we're talking about, you know, is, again, kind of almost as old as humankind. I mean, you know, speed is now new. I mean, you know, you did not in the past have the ability for a fractional bank to be able to be attacked this quickly. And there's no way out of it. Um, you know, the, the issue is already, as we see, is people are going to have to compete with Bitcoin as a payment method. And so the treasury is finally, after 20 years, probably too late, making it so you can do nights and weekends payments. Well, here we go on a speed demon. So, but you're absolutely right that making the incentives a bit more explicit helps because it, it makes it easier to predict what people are going to do. You know, here we've never been in a, you know, unlimited FDIC position before. Now it matters some, it doesn't matter as much. And the reason I say that is like the 
um, the big Basel banks are all probably well capitalized in the truest sense, in other words, the global sense, not the U.S. sense. So it would likely be that, you know, we would erode down to the really big monsters and that's it. And you'd still have kind of the Fed system working. But, you know, the incentives now are actually somewhat to leave those guys because you don't need their safety levels and therefore their, you know, smaller payouts. You know, one of the things we may see is we may see a lot more competition for deposits amongst the regionals now. Higher interest to end users is the way they do that. I think that we that we see that when we get to, you know, really pushing the edge of something like, you know, FDIC and protections or, you know, a bank run of that speed is that we. What's, what's the uh, what's short of it? So these things happen at the margins. And I think because of speed and because of blockchain and transparency, more people are able to operate in that margin. And so in some ways, the margins have grown where we. You know, there were only so many people who could have moved at that type of speed early on to say on some nice Silicon Valley bank. Now, almost everyone can move it. What would have been considered like a margin ability to be able to move that fast, pull that value out. Like that's a, yeah. I would say that that's on the tail of distribution. But now we have so many people who are able to operate at tails of distribution that these things have become less resilient, certain models. And I think that's the reason they've also struggled with crypto is they're, they over, they underestimate how much previously they've been inside of things that are very, very controlled with safety nets on both sides of these. Whereas if you get aggressive in crypto, you can be instantly wrong. And these, these things are so much less, um, you could say, you know, like mark to market spreads or just all these things that would, that would add more inherent risk to the way legacy players act. And I don't think that they're used to seeing that type of volatility. And I don't just mean in price, just volatility in general, because so many people can now participate in the tails or the margins. Yeah, like the tail is wagging the dog. Um, there is one thing that's very different now, and that is that there are some absolutes that weren't necessarily absolutes in the past. And so let me tell, tell you a story. So in 2008, I was running a venture back firm uh, that later sold to Amdocs, and we had raised money just before everything went really weird. So I had a you know, couple years of burn in my regional bank. And there were a couple days there where it wasn't clear that any of the banks were going to make it at all. You know, you had to start to do a contagion analysis of your local bank. And in that world at that time, before Bitcoin launches, you didn't have any alternative. I mean, maybe you could try to physically own treasury bills. But I mean, you know, that's where you're kind of getting back then to say, I've got money. Money's being run. How the heck do I get out of the run? You know, do I buy gasoline? Do I buy whiskey? I mean, that's where you start getting right this time around. Because I've been through that and because we're a cryptocurrency company and because banking cryptocurrency is always amusing, we had a couple of payrolls in Bitcoin laying around. So if things got really pear-shaped, I always knew that there was some self-custody Bitcoin that would be able to be there in a liquid format at that moment to be able to do what had to happen. That's new. You know, the ability to store gold in your pocket is new. And to your point about the at the margins, Crypto is much better at making things binary. So what happens is you get these kind of binary shelling points, right? It's like, look, it works until it doesn't. When it doesn't, it fails completely because right. it doesn't one of the two. Now, we're making things more sophisticated. So like custody, you know, right now it's like, do you have your keys or not? It shouldn't be that way. It should be that, crap, I lost my keys. Here's the stair steps of why. Was that theft? Was it just lost? How can I use these tools to add back some of that control? but do it in a much more clear to you manner. 
And by the way, a lot of what we're doing is we're mirroring stuff that's inside the banks. Like the banks have all these controls and they'll tell you about them because you don't often trigger them. But when you do trigger them, they pull a wire and go, whoa, 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 are you sure this is a wire you meant the same? And, you know, worst case, they call you and go, yeah, no, don't worry. I'm not being scammed. I do I need to send, you know, a much larger wire than I've ever sent before. <laughs> but, you know, we don't have that yet in your cryptocurrency wallet. And we should. There's there, there's two things here. And I would like to there's there's two words that I've actually find really, really interesting in how they affect financial markets and games in general. And it's perversion and deception. And so I want, I want to get your take on, on these two things. So. I, I think where some people like certain aspects of even Bitcoin, we talked about like the simplicity and message and some of these things in crypto. And again, you said that there's the incentive models are usually a little more expressed up front. There's more, there's more of these shelling points where it's nope, it worked. No, it didn't. And right. when we look at a lot of financial instruments, I think so many of these things start from, okay, people should be able to own shares of a company. All right. I'm in on that. And then it gets to the point where it's being radical amounts of, different companies' income is now being used for buybacks. And we're like, okay, well, hold on. That's not really what we meant. And I think that so, you know, FDIC insurance, hey, we don't want small depositors getting wrecked because of big players doing egregious things. And then it's now it's being turned into almost a bailout. And it's like, well, that's not what we meant. And I think so many, so many of the things that I think push people from financial instruments and TradFi markets into crypto is these ideas that started with something great and then were perverted. And I think we're seeing some of those ideals in crypto as well. And then the other is deception. And I think that if you look at everything from like play action passing in the NFL to rule books to journalism, if you don't have adequate controls around what deception, how deception is treated inside of a system, deception is so powerful that it'll break everything. And yeah, so I know you where you see some of these recent things around pushing ideas into perversion and deception and just how that's really played into some of these markets where I think we're getting a crash course in these things. So I think this is what I was getting at when I was telling you, it's not just about the money. Um, you know, the carbon market's an excellent example of what we're just talking about, which is the incentives to double print carbon and double retire carbon from crappy projects are extremely high. You know, talk about the ability to print free money. So, you know, you've got the World Bank, AIDA, and the government of Singapore working in production with us to build a trust layer. Literally, you know, if you, in the future by like summer, if you claim you have a carbon credit for sale and it's not in the climate action data trust, you're a forger and a liar. But if it is now, at least, you know, uh, you have its history from inception to registration. Maybe it's still available. Maybe it's not. You can see that now. And if it is still available, you see it retire in the climate action data trust. So now all of a sudden you've got an audit record backed by a blockchain that says, yeah, that existed at this time. These were the changes it made over its history. And this is ended. And so you can't double spend it. You can't double print it. You know, these are really powerful things when you start talking about how to get the deception out. So when you start backing up the ability to transact and make markets with more of these transparency tools where, you know, you can go look easily and see what last quarter's outflows from this investment entity were. Maybe not the specific details, but you can prove them with proof of reserves. You know, we start to get a whole various different world where it's like, you know, no matter what the accounting chicanery is, how much cash do you really have? You know, this is the thing about Enron, right? If you could actually see the cash balances, it'd be a lot easier for you to go, wait, now, do I see where it is? And I see specifically how you hold it? No. But can I cryptographically prove to myself that you made a correct statement? Yeah, that's a big change. Um, yes. And I, you know, and so I think what we're trying to do is get to a world where your roots of trust and the things you're trusting in 
are a lot easier for your computer to help you analyze and that you can trust that your computer is using data that has trust in it, right? That's kind of the new thing. You know, in the past, like the best you could do was that you're assuming the SEC is keeping Edgar straight, right? But, you know, like the hackers have generally gone against Edgar the other way by trying to see the filings before they're made public. But, you know, some enterprising hacker could have gone the other way and, you know, made a filing that wasn't the filing the company was trying to make and played that in the short market, right? Instead of having to trust those, you know, IT guys and the SEC to keep all that straight, you know, government isn't always the most best security officer on the planet. Uh, I want to just prove cryptographically that what you said matches with the current state of your data layer that I don't see the details on, but you prove inclusion of, right? It's those things that we can add to the markets that all of a sudden the complexity is being managed by your computer in a way that is repeatable. You know, you can go back and do the exact same thing the hard way and get the same exact answer that yes, that thing exists in that database and is the size you said it was. But your computer now can be let loose to do a lot of the cognitive load to show you, yep, we believe this is a profitable company. It had this much profit last quarter. Do you want to buy it? That's where we're heading. And I, I think this is, again, like I brought up, you know, from the, one of the things that, that resonated with me early on was it's mine, like personal sovereignty is responsibility and meaning. And there's, there's a, there's a lot to, to extrapolate just, just ethos and sort of more meta of those concepts besides just when it comes to just fis fiscal advantage that I want to take a, what is a risk and make it a non-risk, right. just, no, no, this is, this is mine. I'm going to make a call. It's there's ownership. These are things just, again, this, this is not new for humans, right? The idea right. that I want to own and be responsible for these things. I think that there's also, th there's a misunderstanding about lack of trust and how it actually affects people as a whole. So we've seen this lack of trust in the media, lack of trust in entities and beyond the, like the direct results, people just don't like being untrusting. They're, it's uncomfortable. It is much more easy. And that's the reason that we default to FTX and all these things. We want to default to trust. It's less emotionally antagonizing and difficult on a human being. And I actually think that there's just a lot to socially fix with blockchains when it comes to just trust. Like we, we've gotten to a place where we've never had less trust than what we think we have now. And I think blockchains are a way to not just, again, improve some of these financial models, but just culturally having things we trust. So, and also how do I put it? The option to have things you trust. So I'll give you a great example of this. You know, everybody's trying to run First Republic over the weekend and maybe a little on Monday, but it seems to have passed. And I'm a First Republic customer, right? Now, I'm a pretty darn sophisticated consumer of finance. So I know I that the vast majority of my funds and equities are in my brokerage account, which has nothing to do with First Republic, the bank, because it's actually managed by Pershing, which is a firm people have seen on their brokerage statements, but don't know what the heck it is. And it's the trusted custody partner for a mini brokerages. So like if FRB went down this afternoon, I have some cash in my checking account, but it's like, you know, pay the bills cash. It's not sure. real cash. Some of my real cash is over in my Pershing account, but mostly it's all my tech stocks and other, you know, near liquid investments that sit there. Mm -hmm. Today, the idea that I would self custody everything in my Pershing account is still a little over the horizon, but I see a world where in fact, I'm going to do exactly that. Now, I may allow First Republic Securities certain limited access to make changes with my approval. And in fact, can you imagine a world where what happens is, you know, they make a request to rebalance you that causes your wallet to wake up and notice the request and go, here's what they want to do. Can you confirm? And you're actually signing that in the background. 
So all of a sudden you're doing a dual SIG where they can't make a change without your approval, but you don't have to do the work. That's what you're paying them to do. And exactly. so you're simply going out there and approving it. And then all of a sudden your vault does exactly what they asked it to do. Um, and then, you know, people started to learn this on the circle side, like, look, circles making a lot of money on your USDC billions, about 2 billion a year. Right. Uh, turns out your brokerage firm is making a lot of money lending your stock out. What would you might want to be in that market with your own stock? And you could do that in your vault where you lend it out provably and take the earnings off of it because a whole bunch of black pools want to have a whole bunch of Tesla stock to go short with. This is where, again, I think this is an example of being better, right? So the initial idea for some of these, again, Napster, LimeWire, Causa, all these things, well, there was this free. So that was like that initial, like lowering a barrier to get people in. For crypto, it's self-custody, again, lack of barrier to entry. We still need it to be better, like to really push thing, push these things over. And I think some of those, the exactly what you're getting there, removing friction, taking in extra incentive models that most of us probably don't even understand exists on that backside of these things and why there's that relationship there between custodianship and what players are doing with assets. That is where if we improve, then everyone comes on board and that lower barrier to entry, it's something they feel is value on the other side, not just lowering a, a, a barrier to entry because if the the sole custody censorship resistance narrative, if that was enough, we'd already be here, right? Like we've had this stuff for a decade. We, we sure it's been adapted fast, but we need, we need new narratives and, and new ways to try to push through some of these things in my opinion. So I, the, I think the reason we didn't get there fully are actually more fundamental technology questions. It was, you know, Bitcoin's not ready to do these more sophisticated transactions. There's, you know, the religious pushback stalling that. There's no reason that ultimately Bitcoin can't have a similar level of functionality to Chia. And in fact, in many ways, we think Chia is going to be that roadmap for Bitcoin to follow. Ethereum promises you all this, but it turns out that the monolithic centralized smart contract is an Achilles heel. It's the thing that keeps losing $3.8 billion last year. And so the people who are necessary in this ecosystem to adopt these technologies are smart enough to know that they want Bitcoin's security level, but they can't really afford to up the usage of Bitcoin energy from where it already is today. And they want what Ethereum is promising them but they know it can't deliver because nobody wants to be the CIO of a major American bank that goes to the CEO and goes, the North Koreans stole a hundred million dollars from us yesterday. You know, real bank money. That's not a, you know, well, it is a career limiting move. So you had to have some technology improvement here to get to a place where you really can say, wait, we might allow real equity to be really self-custodied by people with these correct tools. But we're there now. We now have some of this technology that folks like the World Bank and the IFC and the governments behind the, the Paris Agreement and Article 6.2 can seriously diligence, realize it does what it says it does. It is as secure as we've all been promising and deliver on those really powerful things you couldn't do in the past applications. There's, I, I think this is one of the, the, the value shifts in, in cryptos that a lot of the things that we're solving, people don't realize are actually a problem yet, at least yes. not the, the mainstream users. So this is where I, I champion again, I brought up that having some of that financial literacy to understand where the actual pressure points were and why XYZ narrative structure, entity, role, framework is the way it is, gives you a way of trying to actually solve some of these things rather than just butting up against them and then rebelling the other direction. Well, look, this gets kind of central to like Bram and our view of all this. You know, if you understand the history of a lot of these regulations, it becomes much easier to like understand what the core driving piece is. You know, if, if you ask me about like all SEC regulations, there's some of the SEC regulations that are totally wrong, totally dumb, totally unapplicable to crypto. And ultimately, I think because they're not 
critical to the main will will give way because you know you can make a rational argument about why it doesn't apply to true peer-to-peer DeFi, for example. But the I'm not going to have investor protections when I'm raising money. That one we know how that story goes. In fact, we just got to watch it yet again. You know yep. how many billions of dollars did FTX not have of your money? Uh, and so you know, in that sense, understanding the history, understanding how and why we got to some of these market structures is really important when you're talking about both how can we make them more efficient, but also how can we really unlock them? You know, the, uh, like the reason exchanges had to be so heavily regulated is that in the past, it was really easy to screw other humans if you owned the exchange. You know, you could read out their orders, you could, you know, artificially move the market, you could like give special insider deals to the other side. You can't do that in a truly peer-to-peer DeFi market. I mean, there's still chicanery. There's still MEV. It's not fully MEV free, but you don't have to have like the MEV you have on Ethereum because Ethereum chose to put transactions in an order, which is a mess. Uh, that is where, you know, understanding the reasoning makes sense. And that's also what led us to our very like pro regulatory environment rules. It's like not every part of the regulations are right, but most of them are darn close enough to the issues that matter, you know, but like even we push back on people are like, oh, you needed a KYC, the buyer of a carbon credit. And I'm like, why do we care if terrorists are offsetting their carbon footprint? And I get hilarious responses, but, 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 and it's like, come on. <laughs> so, so again, I, I want to be conscious of time. I, I want to get you out of here on that, on that note, this is, this is something, again, I just, again, I think we can get some direction from your expertise. This regulation that's happened recently has happened very fast, but there's a lot of layers that I think are difficult for people to really purse through and try to get some direction. Just again, I know that that's a very, very intricate topic, but where do you think the general market, the the more average consumer, people who are just in, interested and invested in the space, where should they be trying to direct some of their attention? And and what's I guess what's really significant about what things are changing right now when it comes to regulation and compliance? Well, like what's what are, the, what are the more valuable areas to pay attention? Well, so the SEC has been waiting to win the Ripple case to then go on. I expect a bit of a jihad. Um, you know, their view is if you sold your native coin or your, you know, your, your token to investors for money, then it is most likely a security and they're generally right. Now it gets much more complicated about secondary sales and like, is something still a security? And, you know, I think we'll see a little bit more of a fight about that, but like ripple ripple sold a security at the time. And there's no reason to think that's not a security today. And, you know, you can argue about that a little bit, but the problem is, is that the original sin for most of these projects is they sold coins to investors for an investment of money because they were promising that the number would go up. Um, so the two red flags to look out for as a you know normal person is, did this project sell the coin they're trying to sell you to investors, either privately or publicly? And if so, do they have any sort of SEC compliance? And the answer is no. And so they're at risk. They're at risk of being delisted from coin exchanges because coin exchanges aren't regulated equities markets and therefore can't have something that's a security trade on them. Uh, and the other red flag is when we were talking about earlier, is this a mock chain? You know, is there secretly, you know, the Wizard of Oz behind the scenes pulling your strings and you're actually trusting them with all of your money? And, you know, like if you own an FT on Polygon, please don't piss Polygon Inc. off because they can take it from you whenever they feel like it. There's a lot to go through. There's just there's just so many layers. I, I think that this uh it's it's very, very challenging. One of the other other aspects of these narratives and when we're looking through is as again, as I was bringing up some of those ideas, like, hey, like we just need some truth, some things to actually have some some trust in. Whenever Wells Fargo, any of these other more centralized entities, whenever they launch something new, 
95% of what's going on, we already have framework for. We already agree on language. You know, okay, it's XYZ type of bank. It's this type of investment product. This is what interest, this is what yield, this is what broker. That, you know, we there's so much that we already understand that when we get to the crypto side, it's what, you know, again, we'd have to go through the vocabulary of so many sentences just to get to some framework to actually discuss these things viably. And it is very, very challenging to try to get through some of these things. Well, look, just, you know, kind of untackling the uh, untangling debate between Brian Armstrong and the SEC about staking as a service is a classic example of this. I you agree. know, raw staking is most likely not a security. I only use the word most likely because you could do, you can still do screwy things on the other side of that. But most like Ethereum staking itself isn't a security. How your exchange or your your distributed staking provider provide that to you can be a security or cannot be a security. And the fundamental thing is, is it actually passing through the risks and the rewards directly to you right? and just taking a cut as a service provider, you know, AWS style? Uh, that's not a security. But if they like pull it with another chain and smooth it, out a little bit and did they lend the coins out and they got a balance sheet statement for you you know remember you don't want your ftx to be your staking partner i'll just say it that way funny enough i actually like to use mowing like lawn mowing as a service to make this way make so much more sense to people yep. if i said okay if you give me your lawnmower i'm going to go mow yards and then i'm going to give you back a cut and you said okay right. okay well if you gave me your lawnmower and then i went and hawked it took that money gambled it made money and then brought you back your lawnmower and the winnings would you say that's mowing as a service Nope. It's there you go. Right. And so right. I think that if you just say it that way, everyone's like, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah. And that's the key issue the SEC is trying to avoid. Right. You know, they're not necessarily saying, hey, look, for real like hash rate rental services, you know, as long as the machines are there and you're actually doing the thing, it's not a security. But the moment you start divorcing it from actually doing the, the work and actually exposing the end right. user to his own risks and all those things, we're getting much closer and probably is a security. I think we can wrap up on this. So uh, did you, if you looked at like Green United, I think that was the case where everyone's yeah. like, the SEC just said that nodes and mining hardware are security. It's like, no, they, they said that they said a complete scam was a security. Exactly. <laughs> and, and so even there, I, so yeah, I mean, again, if you read the brief or uh, the brief kind of says one thing, but if you actually go read the filing, the way it, it's orchestrated, it's, it's pretty reasonable. It's like, they said these things were these things. They weren't, they issued it centrally. It was a fraud from the beginning. And it was clearly the expectation of work, basically, that wasn't associated with these nodes and hardware. It's like, all right, well. Yep. I mean, look, if, you're, if you were able to somehow do that as an AWS competitor, right? Like, oh, I'm going to give you storage space, but never actually give it to you. You'd also go to jail for securities fraud. Right. Absolutely. And yeah. So again, we wrap up on a positive note. Do you have any yep. silver linings for some of the, the regulation compliance from like Singapore, the place you guys have worked with? So. Can we end, end on a high note on what we've seen better around the world? Yeah, well, I mean, look, you know, by bringing real world use cases, you know, the Chia blockchain has like one of these weird things of being the blockchain with the most wallets owned by governments that aren't in law enforcement. And, you know, that number is going to go up. So, you know, we've already got folks like the UK and Japan, Peru, Mexico, you know, using the Chia blockchain for real things. And ultimately, I think it's that value statement as we start to show people these value adds that blockchain is kind of uniquely are capable of that changes the conversation and brings it back to what does the tech do for me and why do i like the tech and what's the fundamental value of the tech you know it's not wind moon or you know x percent of gold it's it's no that like okay it cost 915 billion dollars in 2020 just to move money so if one billion of that has demand for blockchains like that's a billion dollar amount of fees a year 
in demand for block space. That's where your fundamental value of a cryptocurrency comes from because you got to buy the Bitcoin or the Chia to buy access to those blocks. And it's that, it's the core utility argument that it's going to win everybody over. And the thing I really want to impress on people is there's a lot of motivated reasoning out there. Oh my God, the SEC is trying to kill us. Oh my God, the SEC is trying to enforce the law that we knew was the law and we don't really want it to be the law, but we're going to blame the SEC for taking down our industry, even though we ignored totally how securities laws work. That's not the SEC's view. The SEC's view is there are ways to completely go through process. Now those now pause. Those ways are hard. They shouldn't be that hard. And ultimately we should make them easier, but that's a different concept. Exactly. We're going to go do it the right way. We're going to go show people how you can do it and how you do it by being truly decentralized, by being, you know, well disclosed and audited and all of the things that the SEC is asking for. And then we want it to be later that you don't have to be Bram and Gene and go like do an IPO to comply that you can do things like use reg, the jobs act, reg crowdfunding, reg a, to be able to do much more manageable things with much more manageable amount of you know, reporting and go build new tools to come compete with Chia. Uh, you may even use the Chia blockchain to finance those on the Chia blockchain to then come compete with us. And we like that. This stuff is, is supposed to be about being able to make it easier to bring capital together. And, you know, in everything but the crypto world, capital formation is just fine. So we think we can actually make it easier to do that and deliver those tools to the future entrepreneurs. It's amazing, man. I'll uh, we'll, we'll wrap up there, man. Again, we'll end on the high note. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure. Uh, hopefully, a lot of people get a lot of content out of this. But me personally, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, someone I want to talk to for a uh, a good length of time. And I people undervalue how great some of the personalities, humans are that are working in the space. We we should lean toward the tech, but there's a lot of great people out here doing amazing things, and there's a there's a lot to gain from them. So I couldn't be more thankful for your time, brother. Well, thank you, and I always love you know helping people learn about blockchains. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, sir. Thanks.